Hello, and welcome to the Former Review. Today, we'll be talking about the 2020 film, Wonder Woman, 1984. Now sit back, maybe grab a drink, and let's talk about this movie. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Former Review. This is Season 3, Episode 43, and I thank you all for tuning in once again. So this episode is going to be twofold. The first part will be a quick overview of the DCU films leading up to this movie and also my experience with them in 4K. And the second part of this will obviously be the review and my thoughts of Wonder Woman 1984. So stay tuned. quick update that's not really movie related. On Monday, December 28th, I received notice of my nomination status for the Golden Crane Awards from the Asian American Podcast Association for my November History Special. And I think to be even considered for this is very humbling, so thank you to them for their consideration. I also want to give a shout out to Erica, who was my guest on that episode. Without her, the episode obviously would not be the same. If you missed that episode, it's season 3, episode 35. I'm not really sure if I'll win or not, but it is still fairly exciting for me. By the time this episode actually is released, however, the war ceremony would have already happened, and you probably already know the result. He can communicate with the future. We all do. Don't they? Emails, credit cards, texts, anything that goes into the record speaks directly to the future. If not, I will be talking about it on the next episode. But either way, shout out also as well to my fiance who has tolerated me while I've recorded all my episodes and pretended to care about movies as much as I do. And also thanks to anyone who really has inspired me to talk about movies the way I do. And thanks to everyone who continues to talk about them with me. Now, before I get into anything regarding movies, I want to preface this episode with that. I do not think that any of the DC films are flawless or really are in my top five comic book movies of all time. Additionally, I will be talking about some older films, so there may be some spoilers if you haven't seen them. As I always say, I will do my best not to ruin the movie for you, and I suggest that you watch them first before hearing what I have to say about them. But regarding the newest film, I will also do a spoiler-free section and then a spoiler-induced section. And I'll let you know when I get there, but if you don't care about spoilers, keep listening. Also, I know I talk about this at the end, but the data shows that most people skip over that part. <laughs> so I do want to reiterate the importance of leaving reviews on your favorite podcast guest service because those reviews really help me grow and improve a lot of you have talked to me offline but i do really appreciate the reviews that already are out there if everyone could just continue doing that or letting me know any way that you think that i could grow and make this more entertaining feel free and i'll look at them and i'll grow as such so if this is your first time tuning in i am a big dc fan in general i love the comics one of my favorite superheroes is batman and i have really loved DC since I was a kid and I read a decent amount of the comics and also watched the DC animated shows and I think there's a lot of really great aspects to these characters. So one of the things that I did participate early on this year is was DC fandom where they released a trailer for this movie and I was starting to do trailer reactions then and obviously recorded one for that trailer of the film and so I'm gonna replay that so you understand where I was coming from going into this movie. This world is not yet ready for all that you will do. The time will come, Diana. I love that they're bringing back in like some of her childhood. That's so dope. Like even for, I know they show that in other trailers, but yo, this score sounds so freaking amazing. Citizens of the world, I'm here to change my life. <laughs> Look at those 80s computers. <laughs> I love it. Anything you dream of, you can have it. Look like you saw a ghost. Diana, lucky you. It's like not one day has passed. I don't want to be like anyone. I want to be an apex predator. You've always had everything, while people like me have had nothing. Well, now it's my turn. Yo, Cheetah! You see you see it. Yo! I've never been one for rules. The answer is always more. Yo! 
Why? They will never find us. I forgot to tell you. What? Radar. Will they will they shoot out at us? <laughs> I love that. Yo! 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 Yo, this is going to be so awesome! Oh god. You know what? I'm ready to go. I think we can do better. Parachute pants? Yeah, um... Does everybody parachute now? As you can see, I was pretty excited for this. So, prior to watching this movie, I did a somewhat marathon to get prepared. Again, if this is your first time tuning in, I have been slowly upgrading my collection to 4K over the past few months. And some of the upgrades that I got included DCEU films. I now have every one of them except Suicide Squad and Justice League on 4K. And frankly, with those two, I'm fine with them being on Blu-ray and not upgrading those. But when Zack Snyder ultimately releases his version of Justice League on 4k i will most likely be buying that anyway i am now able to watch 4k versions which i wasn't before with a basic yet full atmos setup and every rewatch that i've been doing has been essentially a new experience so when i rewatched man of steel batman vs superman dawn of justice the ultimate version because that is the only way to watch that movie and wonder woman there were some things that i experienced that i did not experience the first time around so i wanted to talk about them before going into my thoughts of wonder woman 1984. So let's start off with Man of Steel, and I will say that each rewatch of this movie, whether on the 4K or Blu-ray, I've enjoyed it slightly more. I'm just not sure if this is due to actually the quality of the movie or it's just me not caring about the issues as much as I used to, because I still see the flaws. I'm not really the biggest fan of this movie as some are, but I do see some potential for it. It's just I'm not really a fan of where they take the Superman character, but I'm not going to talk about the movie itself today. So this movie was shot with a combination of traditional 35 millimeter film and was mastered in a 2K digital intermediate. So it is not true 4K, but when I watched it in 4K, flesh tones, I do think look more natural, but overall, I wouldn't say it's that defining of a difference from the Blu-ray. However, I do think the HDR 10 is where the 4k shines i mean that is what goes on with most 4k discs i do think it did allow me to notice differences in the design that went into the interior of their spaceships and debris falling from buildings and also explosions the colors definitely pop more and the light sequences either by the sun or the explosions themselves and it does have a pretty amazing atmos experience which is an upgrade from the blu-rays dts hd master audio han zimmer's score i appreciated much much more this time around. It filled up my entire movie space along with the dialogue. And frankly, this was the best part of the 4K upgrade that really shows during the action sequences. Anything from the jets, helicopters, alien spacecrafts, Kryptonians speeding across the sky utilized the ceiling speakers at any possibility. Moving in a way from front to back and from one side of the room to the other, the audio moves with it. One example of this was when the Kryptonians at the beginning of the film were arresting Zot. The scene Zod is below the ships and the declaration comes from the ceiling only. It was such an amazing effect. Every explosion is felt from the subwoofers and can really rattle the room. Then there are some quieter moments like when birds are flying overhead that really add to the dialogue that really make this 4K Atmos experience the best way for enjoying the movie. So that may be one of the biggest reasons that I really enjoyed rewatching this movie more than the movie itself. Now on to Batman vs Superman, and in short, I think there's a lot of potential in it. But it is extremely stuffed with things that really, really have problems. Because it's trying to do too many different storylines, and it's not really cohesively done in a way that I think a story could be done. Because it really does do the Batman vs Superman aspect, but then it also does the death of Superman, and then Doomsday, in addition to setting up Justice League and introducing Wonder Woman and Batman and being a Superman sequel. It's just there's a lot going on. Now there is a lot in this that I do enjoy though. 
and again the ultimate cut is the best version if you haven't watched it i can't really take your opinion seriously about this movie because the theatrical cut yes that is a horrific movie this version is so much better and frankly that's the reason why i'm looking forward to Zack snyder's cut of justice league even more so because i think his version of the story is going to be a little bit better than what we got honestly it can't get much worse though anyway so the 4k experience of this film so it was shot on a variety of digital cameras that really maxed out at 3.2k with 35 millimeter 65 millimeter and then some imax cameras and this movie then was mastered on a 4k digital intermediate this is one of those films that's kind of on the borderline of true 4k because it depends on the sequence of the 4k the imax situations obviously would be but the digital cameras would max out at 3.2k and then again there was some 35 millimeter and 65 millimeter so it's not a hundred percent there but it's like 75 percent there i would say and for the most part i think that it looks fantastic though there's not a lot of it the color does again look slightly better than the blu-ray i think superman's cape is a lot more bold and i think his blue armor slash tights do look a lot more royal blue metal alloy than just blue the film is very dark so it's not really the best to demonstrate hdr but i do think that the film overall feels more bright than the blu-ray does the black levels i think give great detail and make this rewatch really feel more cinematic than i've ever seen before i think there is a good amount of grain but i think that's to be expected especially when you're using 35 and 65 millimeter film and even the special effects i think look good as the digital intermediate was 4k though it's not night and day between 4k and the blu-ray but i think the details and the, that's where you're going to notice where the film shines and frankly the details in general is where this film shines it's the little things that Zack Snyder puts in there that make this film seem better than it is and I think it was a great visual experience and that is an overall improvement over the blu-ray now similar to Man of Steel it also has a great Atmos track but that was on the blu-ray as well I think right from the start you see this as Bruce Wayne is driving through Metropolis and this cut of the film has really excellent panning across all speakers similarly to Man of steel and i really heard debris falling from above and the concrete collapsing around me dialogue driven moments again were great and the score is phenomenal in this movie the bass in the subwoofer shook the room once again and frankly this audio was such a immersive watching experience now on to the Wonder Woman solo film. So chronologically, it does obviously happen prior to the other two films, but I watched it in this order because it makes sense in the sense of BVS introducing the Wonder Woman character. After 1984, I would most likely go back and I would do watch this film chronologically speaking because from what I know, what's gonna happen on the eventual sequel is that that is supposed to happen post Justice League. So this is gonna be really interesting to watch it chronologically because that's also how I rewatched the Marvel films as well is chronologically starting with Captain America First Venture, then watching Captain Marvel and then continue on as the story falls out chronologically. But that's another episode. So this first film, I really, really like it. It is able to mix in the hero journey formula, fish out of water comedy very successfully. Patty Jenkins takes a superhero that is very loved and puts her into World War One. And this is where the movie shines because you have really fantastic heroic moments and it feels like a war movie at times that just so happens to have a superhero in it. And this is obviously fully exemplified in the battlefield trench scene because Jenkins is showing the misery of all the characters as their friends are being being carried away and there's fright in their eyes and they don't know what moment will be their last. You cannot leave without helping them. These people are dying. There's no man's land, Diana. Means no man can cross it, all right? This battalion has been here for nearly a year and they, they barely gained an inch, all right? Because on the other side, there are a bunch of Germans pointing machine guns at every square inch of this place. This is not something you can cross. It's not possible. We can't save everyone in this war. It's not what we came here to do. Now, 
but it's what I'm going to do. Diana then climbs out of the trench and charges toward the enemy to give the soldiers hope that they will fight another day. This message of hope really hasn't existed in the other DC films at this point and even in the majority of the Marvel. But in this film, you care about these people. You want to see them defeat the antagonist of the film that they're up against. Jenkins favors character in this movie over the conflict, which gives the film a much better result. And when Gal Gadot was cast for this, I know that there was a lot of issues with her. People were saying that she was not muscular enough or that she was not a good enough actress for such a high profile role. Me, I was skeptical, mainly because she hadn't done anything at this point aside from the Fast and Furious movie. I wasn't against her because I did enjoy her in those films. But I mean, honestly, I wouldn't say that those films have any great act. However, she does a great job by giving Diana strength, warm, individuality, and also curiosity. Chris Pine as Steve Trevor is also great with his line delivery, which gave some really good scenes that showed the chemistry between Gadot and Pine, and not just romantic chemistry. And what's really great about it is that this character shows that romantic interest characters do not have to be small secondary characters. Trevor is honestly just a above average guy, but this film gives him personality and complexity, and he's a mix of comic relief, sex object, but also he has his own ideas when it comes to duty, sacrifice, and ideals. He enhances the story in comparison to the other secondary characters in other comic book films that really only exist as a romantic interest. He is her partner within the story, and he was a competent and equal figure to Diana aside from obvious superhero aspects. Interestingly, both of them went through a fish out of water story with him obviously on Themyscira and her in the real world. And this really helped to show the equality between them. You know, where I, where I come from, I'm not considered average. So anyway, this movie was shot with traditional 35mm and digital cameras, which were then later mastered on a 2K digital intermediate. The 4K disc did look nicer in regard to its resolution, and the details were fairly sharp, especially during the action sequences, but even more so in the non-action bit. You could really see everything clearly, from the leaves on the trees, to the lettering on bottles, to tiny cre creases in Wonder Woman's iconic costume. And the contrast in HDR really shows during the Themyscira scenes, which are definitely brighter than on the Blu-ray. The water just looks more blue. And honestly, I wanted to go for a swim in it. The black levels are great. They give more shine to Diana's hair. It looks so realistic. Now, similar to BVS, the Blu-ray also had an Atmos track. It's pretty fantastic because it effectively uses the ceiling and surround speakers in the exact same way. Airplanes are flying overhead. Bullets are whizzing by in every direction. Debris are showering down from above. During the many battle scenes, and especially during the battle with Ares, and that scene is an impressive scene by itself. Rupert Gregson Williams' score is just as fantastic as Zimmer's, and again, the immersive feeling of this movie was felt. My main issue with this movie is the pacing. I think that when they arrived in London and then getting to the battlefield was fairly slow, and it kind of dragged for me a little bit. While I understand that was used to show the more fish out of water story, I think that could have been cut down a little bit to make the film a tad shorter. And another big issue is honestly with the villains. I think that Dr. Poison is not really fleshed out at all. And she's the stereotypical mad scientist. And Ludendorff had powers of some sort. They didn't really explain what that was, but it was fine. I am able to accept it. Honestly, some of the film was predictable, but that just may be me. So I think that it is a really good DC film. The World War One aspects of this really make it the top of the DCEU films for me because those moments are so powerful that honestly none of the other DCEU films have. Alright, so that's my retrospective reviews. So on to the movie at hand. Let's sit back, relax, grab your drinks, and let's discuss the movie. So I want to say this discussion of this film will be a long one if you haven't noticed the amount of time. And this is because since this film being released on Friday, it has had me defending the film more than I have ever defended a film in the past. I'm really not sure why it made me feel this way, but I saw so much negativity about it that I didn't see, so I couldn't just stand by and do nothing. And unfortunately, this has put a toll on my mental health. So this episode is going to be my last detailed response to any discussion 
discussion regarding this film. And if you're not willing to at least listen to the entirety of my thoughts, then the discussion is pretty much futile. You're not going to get what I'm saying out of it via my phone or my computer. And frankly, that takes way too much effort and honestly too much mental strength that I don't have. That's not to say that I'm not going to be talking about it, but if you're not even hearing what I'm saying through the internet or whatever, then it's almost futile to keep trying to push this forward and you don't even hear what I have to say about it. Because I think that, frankly, everything that I'm going to go through is a fine defense to why this movie is good. You disagree with me and dislike the film, fine. I don't care as long as you hear me out. While not perfect, the film is well made and it does have a good story, good characters, a good message, and a good ending. And I hope you'll stay till the end so you understand where I'm coming from. The Wonder Woman 1984 is a superhero film based on the DC Comics character Wonder Woman. It is the ninth installment in the DC Extended Universe, also known as the DCEU. Once again, the film is directed by Patty Jenkins with a script that she wrote with Joff John and David Callahan. It again obviously stars Gal Gadot, Chris Pine, Robin Wright, and Connie Nielsen with newcomers Kristen Wiig and Pedro Pascal. It is set in 1984 during the Cold War and the film follows Diane and her past love, Steve Trevor, as they face off against Maxwell Lord, played by Pascal, and Cheetah, played by Wig. This film was released on HBO Max and in Cinema Safe Theaters. Now, because there are none around me, I watched on HBO Max, but I may have gone to a theater if there was one around me. So, in regard to the video and audio presentation, this movie was filmed with a combination of 35mm, 65mm, and digital cameras. It was then mastered on a 4K digital intermediate. So, arguably, this is more 4K than the first film. According to Jenkins, this was going to be the first film on HBO Max to be in 4K Ultra HD, have HDR10, Dolby Vision, and Dolby Atmos. Now, again, if this is the first time you're turning into the Sepals, I have had qualms with this claim. Warner Brothers and HBO Max have not released any information till the time when I'm recording this about what internet speeds you need to get those features. If they don't say what they need, then it's hard for me to believe that it is true 4K. Streaming 4K takes a lot of bandwidth and compression, then you add in Dolby Atmos. Without confirmation, it really is hard to definitely say. So I watched HBO Max on my Xbox Series X, which normally can play 4K UHD with Dolby Atmos and everything. As of this recording, HBO Max doesn't allow 4K Atmos or any of those things on HBO Max. So unfortunately, even if my internet had been at top tier levels, I wouldn't have gotten it. I was honestly saddened by that because I want to see this in 4K and even seeing it on a 92 inch screen is nice and it technically was 4k by upscale properties but it was very noticeable to me that it wasn't actual 4k in the dark scenes there was a lot of noise it didn't take me out of the film so much but it just was really obvious to me that it wasn't 4k as such i didn't have atmos which is really sad because the score is really really good it really didn't have that atmos experience that i was hoping for and i mean it had a 5.1 experience which is fine it just that's all it is it's fine it's not as good as what it could have been so when this is released ultimately on 4k ultra hd i'm looking forward to that so before i go into any more into the movie i want to give a quick shout out here to rachel from rachel's reviews because in her piece on this movie she posed the question and i quote is disappointing the same as bad my answer to this question is no it's not you can be disappointed in the film and it not be bad and i think that if a film did not give you what you wanted that doesn't mean it's a bad film. I will say I don't agree with everything that she said. However, her main question sentiment is what I agree with. I do think that a lot of people were expecting something else than what they got and then they got upset about it and said that the film was bad. If one does not feel emotionally attached to a film, that's fine. A film can be loved and be an awful film at the same time. Additionally, a film can be hated and still be a good movie. Both sentiments are valid. And this is the idea of objective versus subjective when it comes to film criticism and or evaluation. Many people online and elsewhere, including myself, use these terms to really defend what makes a movie good or bad. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. 
Okay, so let's define that. So according to the dictionary, objective means, quote, existing independent of or external to the mind, actual or real, based on observable phenomena, empirical, uninfluenced by emotions or personal prejudices, end quote. Subjective means, quote, dependent on or taking place in a person's mind rather than the external world, based on a given person's experience, understanding, and feelings, personal or individual. Like I said already, there is room for both of these in film criticism. With discretion, one can look at a film with one's head as well as one's heart. For example, I really like X-Men Origin Wolverine, fully knowing that it is a ridiculously cheesy movie. At the same time, I can understand why The Birth of a Nation is a horrific film, yet important story, without ever wanting to watch it again. Rare movies are able to combine the two, and frankly, when that happens, that's when you get a really, really good film. And I'm not saying this to tell you what you can like and what you can't like. In fact, I'm actually saying the exact opposite. I'm saying you can like and dislike anything you want. I'm only saying there is more to film than love and hate. It's more complex. So what does the objective end look like when talking about a film? The easiest way to look at it is look at its purpose. When you look at the definition again, it says based on observable phenomena. And that translates to having specific criteria in mind. And that is one of the biggest separators between subjective and objective. And if you can back up the criteria with evidence, then really you're walking the walk. And People who walk the walk, they sometimes talk the talk, but most of the time they don't talk at all because they walk. And honestly, it's not that hard to define this criteria. And when you do, it creates a consistent measurement when you critique a film. Now, if your only criteria is enjoyment, fine. But if you say a movie is bad because you didn't enjoy it, and then I say it's good because I enjoy it, I'm not wrong. And you can't tell me that. So this is why the criteria needs to be consistent. If there is a consistent definition, then one can examine the purpose of the film and honestly art more thoroughly because film is an art and it's not just an emotional response. While that's part of it, it's not the only factor. An analysis looks at the elements and principles of it put together independent of feelings that the viewer may get from. The analysis sees a work of art as a combination of all of those things, organized into structures, and then tries to understand how these components work together to impact whomever. So what makes a movie objectively good? From my understanding, there are essentially five characteristics. The first one is good characters. Characters are the most important part of storytelling. They're the life of the film. The second must be a story, and frankly, that can make or break a film. The third is a clear theme that the audience can take away from from the movie and this should be weaved into the story and then you also have to be attentive to details from the writing casting production the shots it all must be considered and the finale is the most crucial aspect to it as it must end in a way that brings the film to a close yes you can set up other things but the singular film must end appropriately. I will say I do like films that end on a kind of cliffhanger, but at the same time, that does solve the story that they're doing within the film. So after looking at those five factors, then I look at how I feel about them, which is the subjective point. As with anyone, the way a movie makes someone feel is 100% valid. No one can take that away from you and they have their part in the conversation. But I'll say it again, there's room for both. Applying a little objectivity won't take away from the subjectivity. In fact, when you combine the two, get a more well-rounded overall thought about the film with a greater appreciation of multiple perspectives and in the end, the film itself. So I say all of this to illustrate my feelings about Wonder Woman 1984. There's been a lot of back and forth between people regarding this movie, not just myself. I've read different things and it's been very divisive. Obviously, people have loved it and people have hated it. Now, again, I'm not saying people are wrong for feeling this way. They don't have to like the film. I could care less whether they like it or not. It's more about saying that this is the worst comic book movie or this is the worst movie of 2020. 20 or, or whatever. Frankly, these statements are hyperbolic in nature because I can name you multiple films that are definitely worse than this in both situations. Wonder Woman really isn't either of those two things, objectively speaking, but I 
I will get into that in my spoiler section. So here's my spoiler free review. You may have seen this on Backseat Directors, but I'm going to say it again here. So I can't say much more about the plot, but I do think it's super clever. The movie evolves from a vibrant and somewhat cheesy 1980s in the first act to an emotional one in the second act to a philosophical third act. I think Gal Gadot once again shines as Diana, delivering very intense acting, and her chemistry with Chris Pine again is fantastic. Pedro Pascal and Kristen Wiig as Lord and Barbara Maneuver respectively are good as well. I think Pascal plays a complex and moving character and Wig does show her acting range because normally she's known for comedies and here she does a really good job. I think her character's progression was understandable from her behavior to her clothing and this was done extremely well by Patty Jenkins. Like I said already, the score by Hans Zimmer is also fantastic. That honors both old compositions from prior films and introduces new ones. My only small issue with the film is that it could have developed Maxwell Lord a little bit more than the quick flashback in the climactic scene. Does this film have a moment as impactful as the first movie's No Man's Land scene? Not as impactful, I will say that, but I still think there is a comparable heroic scene. However, if one is expecting the first one, you're gonna be disappointed. It's definitely a more thoughtful and emotional movie, even though there's a lot going on that may not work 100% of the time. As Superman learned in Superman 2, a hero must face the truth and choose the selfish slave for the betterment of the human race. No true hero is born from lies. Then you add in the George Orwell concepts of truth from 1984. There was truth and there was untruth. And if you clung to the truth even against the whole world, you were not mad. The film says that absolute power can corrupt the best of us, but the truth will set you free. Add in a few DC Easter eggs and you get a pretty enjoyable movie that will be worth re-watching again. Okay, now I'm going to talk with spoilers. You have been warned. Okay, so let's back up again to the five characteristics that I talked about. Story, character, themes, details, and ending. So, the story takes place in 1984, where hypernationalism and partisanship with the Cold War. The United States and the Soviet Union appears to be edging closer to oblivion to many at that time, including another comic book writer, Alan Moore, who infused this pessimistic attitude into his dystopian superhero tale, Watchmen. There's this scenario of kind of bad relations between American and Russian governments that this movie is taking place in. And this is very different from the World War One aspect. Like I said in my spoiler-free review, if you're expecting a war film, you're going to be disappointed. The Cold War was immensely different from World War One. Not so much a battlefield, but basically a chess match. And that's why this is such a different type of attitude. When you compare the two settings, World War One, we show the aspects of that in a very sad situation. And and you see that. So even if you don't know anything about World War One going in, you can still see why Wonder Woman is needed in those moments. Now, in a different situation, then when you fast forward to the Cold War, there are similar aspects to that because it's a different type of communication because you have a nameless president but the president at the time was Reagan and there's obviously this issue with who has nuclear bombs and all of that if you treat it with the same situation you can still get that aspect of it because they talk about it in the same way the problem that I think a lot of people have with that is that's not as visually pleasing when it comes to showing how awful a situation is but because most people, especially today, don't see the awfulness of a nuclear war. It's never actively happened, which obviously is a good thing, but the visual components of it is hard to portray because of, because of that unfamiliarity of what it actually is. Yeah, we can know it's a bad thing, but there's no visuals to go with it. That can bring down the seriousness of it, at least in this movie, those who have lived through that they know what it is the one generation below that they know it based on what has been told but the generation below that most likely they don't know it is that doesn't mean that it's not there so 
once you apply that into the story, then it works. But again, you can't expect that to be shown given the war itself. It's not a visual war. It's not. It's not the same thing. So if you're expecting that, you're not going to get it. You will be disappointed. But again, like I said earlier, just because it's not what you like doesn't mean that that's a bad decision. While I do think the World War One is superior to this, I also know that it is a very different scenario. And the setting of the movie is not the story. That's just where the story takes place. You have to take that out of it when you're looking at just the story. If you were expecting a Stranger Things aspect or it to be filled with 80s music, and I'll get to that in a little bit, but you're going to be disappointed because that's not what this movie is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be 80s nostalgic type of thing. That's not what it's supposed to. Just like the first film is not supposed to be nostalgic for World War One. It's supposed to show the problems of the era, which it does. In addition, when you look at George Orwell's novel of 1984, it covers themes that are looked at in this film. So for those who did not read that book in high school or at all, 1984 is set in then a distant future where London is part of a totalitarian government called Oceania. The world's population has become victims of perpetual war. The government surveys everything that its citizens do, including their thoughts. And there's a daily ritual that is called Two Minutes of Hate in which the party citizens must watch this video of the party's enemies and perform anger toward them. And this is a reality in which the government dictates how you think. And if you have independent thought, that is a lie. So only truth is from what they tell you. So this was published on June 8th, 1949 as Orwell's ninth and final book completed in his lifetime. And Orwell modeled the authoritarian government after Stalinist Russia. More broadly though, the novel examines the role of truth and facts within politics and the ways that they are manipulated. Quote, who controls the past? controls the future, who controls the present, controls the past. Orwell writes a very cynical vision of external oppression and also nihilistic cynicism. In this book, it's not the literal and scariest tool of the government's control, it's the total and complete erosion of independent thought. And this novel was adapted into a film in 1984, written and directed by Michael Radford. And I rewatched this movie preemptively to Wonder Woman 84 because Patty Jenkins herself said that the year was chosen purposefully. It stars John Hurt, Richard Burton, Susanna Hamilton, and Cyril Cusack. The film is fairly safe with the novel and is a fantastic movie that I suggest everyone watch. Hurt is absolutely perfect as Smith, whose job is to change these government documents so they reflect quote-unquote reality. He then meets Julia, played wonderfully by Hamilton, who gives him a note saying, I love you. And together they become revolutionaries simply by being together. Walking in the countryside and eating strawberry jam. So I'm not going to give away too much more about this movie, but this movie was one of my Black Friday purchases. I saw this movie back in high school and I loved it. And I had been waiting for a really good sale to find it. And luckily in November, they were having a 50% of all off on the Criterion Correction. It is a Blu-ray, but it is a 4K restoration. And it's a bleak vision that looks beautiful by Roger Deakins cinematography and really, really great performances from the entire cast. The restoration was supervised by Deacon and certain things were removed and there was a bleaching effect that was also supervised by Deacon because this is the first copy I've owned and I really couldn't be happier. Interestingly, and I found this out later, that many of the film scenes were shot on the actual dates mentioned in the novel. So when Winston Smith writes the date April 4th, 1984, that's when the, that scene was filmed. I thought that was so interesting. But what makes the story so impactful is that how it can constantly be applied and reapplied to contemporary society. It's also apolitical. Now, I'm not talking about politics in this episode, but my main point of bringing this story up is to talk about the concept of truth. In this book and the film, there is a ministry of truth that could say whatever it wanted and make it quote-unquote truth. In Wonder Woman 1984, Maxwell Lord represents this. As he alters the truth of the world, he artificially makes the world fit to his will without thinking of others. He is taking the easy way 
out. However, the seemingly easy way out is never an easy road. There is always a price to pay. And in this movie's case, it's the stones taking away what you most value. Diana, it took away her Amazonian heritage, also her powers. And this is because this is the only thing that she really holds on to. She can't go back home. She was looking all the time for Asteria's armor because it represented part of her culture that she wanted to hold on to. Barbara took away her humanity and Maxwell took away his health slash his life. This is the decision that the story is about. As Diana is our hero, her story is that she has to decide what matters more. Her happiness, but it's a lie, or the truth. And this goes into the second part, the characters. So the three main ones are obviously Diana, Barbara, and Maxwell. So let's start with Diana. She's obviously very different from the first film. In some ways, she is more human than we have ever seen her before. Yes, we know from the comics, and honestly the last movie, that she is a beacon of hope, and she is still that in some ways as shown in the opening mall scene. However, we see her wanting something else for herself. She gives what she can every day and never really asks for anything in return. In this film, the writers and Gadot herself do a great job of emphasizing the fact that even this powerful character who gives off confidence and strength still has vulnerabilities. This time around, Gadot plays into this in a way that really we haven't seen her do before on screen. And this very genuine performance really put this film on another level. At this point in Diana's life, she has no one. All of the people that you've cared about from the first film are gone. Steve obviously sacrificed his life and the others most likely died from natural causes. Due to her Amazonian or God heritage, she has outlived them all. There are pictures in her home of them, but that's it. She is alone. However, she still helps people even though she has lived through World War One, the Holocaust, World War II, and the Vietnam War. She's obviously lived through other intense things as well. And there have been multiple cases of her continuing to help humanity, like the image that shows her involved with liberating Auschwitz, even though one could argue that they don't deserve it. But as she learns in the first film. But it's not about that. It's about what you believe. I fight and I give. This is my mission now. Forever. It's her duty to continue fighting. However, she knows very little people in the world. She had her friends from World War One and her family back on Themyscira, but she can't return to her home and her friends are long gone. She is intelligent, so she uses the skills that she has for her benefit. However, arguably, she is an introverted person. She's clearly focused on more of her internal thoughts, feelings, and moods, rather than seeking out external stimulation. She may be saving people, but that's due to her belief, and she says this in the movie. Don't get out much socially. I actually tend to skip these events. I find that our benefactors with a true eye toward philanthropy prefer to stay out of the spot. And then this again makes sense when she initially rejects Barbara's friendship at the beginning of the film. Do you want to get lunch? I, um, I, I'm not now, obviously. <laughs> it's morning, but later today or whenever, like around like a lunchtime. I have a lot of work today, but maybe some other time? Oh. She knows that if she becomes friends with her, that she will potentially lose her. However, she sees the freedom in Barbara later on that she envies. <laughs> you just seem like you'd be really popular. And I would know because I've never been popular. You haven't? You're so personable. So free. I mean, honestly, I gotta say that I, I envy that. <laughs> what? You envy me? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> they both obviously envy each other, which then adds more significance to this line. Well, cheers to us. Um, wishing us better luck, I guess. <laughs> but more on that in a little bit. But for now, I'm going to continue talking about the two big characters of the films who will end up being the villains. So the film has these two people who simply make bad choices as victims and whose motivations are fairly clear and frankly empathetic. Both are played fantastically by Pascal and Wig. Barbara is both a victim of society's emphasis of what should be successful and also her inner feelings of unworthiness. And according to 1984 society and somewhat still today, she has to be beautiful, skinny, and potentially get with a successful man or man in general to be successful. Minerva wants to be more like Diana because she is all these things. The irony is, of course, that none of us can be the other person. Everyone has probably heard the phrase, the grass is greener on the other side, but there's always something that we
we aren't seeing. And to quote Orwell again, always, at every moment there will be a thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on an enemy who is helpless. Barbara doesn't see the lonely part of Diana's life. People think I'm weird. They avoid me and talk behind my back and they don't think I can hear them. It's like, hi, they can hear you. <laughs> Barbara, my life hasn't been what you probably think it has. We all have our struggles. Yeah, we do. The problem that comes with celebrity idolation. As a society, we are shown a lifestyle that we want to emulate and all are based on how the media portrays it. Life is good, but it can be better. We're told it can be better, but we don't focus on what we have. Always looking to improve is a good thing, but you can't lose sight of who you are. And Barbara loses sight of it. When she wishes herself to be like Diana and starts exhibiting similar strengths, abilities, and also confidence, she moves away from herself. And instead of accepting and playing to her own strengths, she tries to move toward an unattainable ideal. And she becomes addicted to this feeling so much that she's willing to give up her humanity and also the humanity of the world for it. She'd rather watch the rest of the world burn just so she can get what she wants. And she wants this other life, but with that comes so much anger that she didn't even realize she had. To see her be able to just unleash it, especially when she's beating up the predator, you're conflicted because you do feel that it's good that she's getting payback on this guy, but then she goes too far and essentially becomes a predator herself and then more obviously so later. And this character is pretty easy to emphasize with, especially if you've ever wished you wanted you were more graceful, wished you were stronger, wished you were more attractive, or even wished you could just stand up for yourself. By adding in the sexual assault aspect to the character, it makes her an updated and honestly more realistic and empathetic villain than her comic book counterpart. Now I'm not going to compare the two too much here because there's multiple iterations that this version takes inspiration from, but generally speaking, Cheetah has always been envious of Diana and this updated version for the state of things both in the 1980s and in the present day it makes sense. Maxwell Lord also isn't a cut and dry villain either. He's a victim of society that tells him that he has to be a certain way to be successful. He has to have a lot of money. So his motivation is to make himself a man he believes his son can be proud of. And that's what drives him. And ultimately, that's what redeems him in the end because he becomes somebody who his son is proud of. And that's when he renounces his wish. And he's always being told by society that he's a loser. He pees the bed. He doesn't have the money to have new shoes. He goes to a less off school. By the end, he realizes that all he needs is to love his son in order to gain his son's respect and then obviously love back to him. And he becomes this guy who's able to admit his mistakes and theoretically he would repent for this. I mean, I don't really know how laws work in the DC world, but that's neither here nor there. I will say that this is the portion that I mentioned is a little rushed. It was something that we got mostly in the climax of the film instead of a gradual buildup like Barbara. Because her transformation is very evident visually and through the little details and this is the third point induced in the film structure. Her first social outing after being granted her wish has her wearing a dress that looks similar to Spots. And then when they are at the gala, the song Welcome to the Pleasure Dome by Frankie Goes to Hollywood plays. people who are complaining about there's no 80s music, that's a song from the 80s. It came out in 1984. And for those who don't know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood is also famous for this song, so you might want to listen to it when you're complaining about 80s music. Relax, don't do it when you want to go to it. What is really intuitive about this song is the lyrics of it. The lyrics of the song are inspired by the poem Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coolidge. And to fully analyze this poem would take a longer time than I'm already talking for. But in short, it deals with the dangers of excessive indulgence. Go look it up. It definitely applies here. This is the small details that I talked about early on. In this sequence, we see our two women characters getting their wishes and then them seeing 
the so-called benefits of them. Barbara is having people gaze upon her and not with disgust, similar to what Diana gets. And this is where we see Diana falling to her selfish side. She, as the movie shows, inadvertently wishes to see Steve Trevor again, and she gets her wish. Yes, the way that the stone takes over this random dude's body is a little iffy, but I think that that definitely just goes underneath the whole bar of wishes being granted because you don't really question how Maxwell becomes the stone or how does Barbara get the confidence. They don't really go into that, but that's the point of the stone. It's changing things and making things not true and essentially changing reality itself, which is comic book accurate, which I'll get to in a little bit. And that's honestly something that you just have to suspend your disbelief for because it's a comic book movie. She thinks and feels that she's happy. And as Jenkins did with the first film, this is an homage to Richard Donner's version of Superman from the late 1970s. In the second film, Superman gives up his powers to be with Lois. He loves her and wants to marry her. He sacrifices all ties to his Kryptonian heritage for her. Then, when he's beat up in a diner and Zod tries to take over the planet, he can't do anything to stop it. He realizes the error in his ways and sees that he has to put the people of the planet before his happiness because that is his duty. Similarly, in this film, Diana has to make this decision. While she doesn't go as far to sacrifice all of her ties to Themyscira, her decision's the same thing. If she'd stop Lord and the Dreamstone, she will have to give up Steve all over again. And she's been lonely without him, so is the last thing that she wants. She does everything that she can do to prevent giving him up, but ultimately she can't and must give up Steve for the greater good. And this is what parallels her with Barbara, as it shows that the best of us can be selfish sometimes. But as Diana is told as a child, you took the short path. You cheated, Diana. That is the truth. That is the only truth, and truth is all there is. No true hero is born from lies. This decision moment she becomes a true hero. She lets Steve go and she can finally be the hero we all want her to be. She is now free of the lies. She is now free to do whatever she wants, including flying. And on that note, she is able to fly in the comics and in the TV shows. Plus also Zack Snyder planned for her to fly eventually. So I don't see the issues here, but let's not look outside this specific film and concentrate on the film series. Firstly, we do see her somewhat levitate in the final battle scene against Ares in the first film. And early on in this film, there's a moment where she is looking up at the sky. And let's circle back around to when Diana and Barbara are out together. Where'd he go, your guy? He, um, he died. But I still think sometimes that I see him up there in the sky. He was a pilot. Oh. He was all kinds of things, but he was great. Now, let's go to the point in the movie where Diana and Steve are talking about flying. You know, it's the one thing. The one thing that's always been new to me. What? Flight. Your gift. I'll never understand it. Not so easy, really. It's, it's, it's wind and air. Who knows how to, how to ride it, how to catch it, how to join the... Yeah. When she is letting go of the lie and moving on with truth, he is now able to connect with Steve again when she flies. Because superheroes, generally speaking, are meant to inspire. They represent somebody who we are not or someone that can do things that we can't do. Clinical psychologist Robin Rosenberg wrote that, quote, superhero stories help us in finding meaning in loss and trauma, discovering our strengths and using them for a good purpose. End quote. She also stated that, quote, superheroes undergo three types of life-altering experiences that we can relate to. The first one is trauma, which is like the one that young Bruce Wayne goes through and he makes a promise to his murdered parents that to fight against crime in Gotham City. Rosenberg says this is directly applicable to a lot of life scenarios. And her research has shown that, that after trauma, people can resolve to help others and become social activists. The second one is destiny, and this is kind of similar to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She's a normal teenager.
teenager who discovers that she's the chosen one to fight demons. She has to be the one who does not have a normal life and will take this burden. And that Rosenberg's last type of experience is similar to what Spider-Man goes through. When he initially gets his powers, he uses it for selfish reasons until his beloved Uncle Ben is killed. This experience is somewhat similar to the first, but instead of the trauma defining the hero, it's the choice that matters. With great power comes great responsibility. With adversity, finding meaning in loss and trauma, discovering our strengths and using them for a good purpose." End quote. We want to attach ourselves to these characters and we want to see them in ourselves. We want to see those with these abilities that are still imperfect and relatable. And we are confronted by seeing them struggle with ordinary problems but are still able to do the right thing in the end. And I say all of this to show why the story that Patty Jenkins has put into play is legit. She has stated that her biggest inspirations for this film are Sam Raimi's Spider-Man and also Donner's Superman. And this shows in her story and in her characters, the first two characteristics of an objectively good film. I've already talked about the third with the film's themes of truth versus taking the easy way out with lies. There are also themes and messages that state individualism, egotism, and greed can lead to poor mental health, and you know, similar to those migraines that the characters are getting in the film. And also, they are responsible for hate and war and I already discussed the small details that show the purposeful aspects of the film. The last and most important quality of the film is its ending. The majority of comic book movies, especially in the DCEU, end with this big CGI-filled violent battle. Rah! While this is in this film somewhat with her battle with Cheetah, it's a very grounded fight. It's a one-on-one -on -one battle that feels more meaningful because of the contrast of the two characters that developed over the course of the film. The film then finishes with a powerful speech. And this was honestly surprising to me because of Snyder. I was honestly thinking when Diana was going here that she was going to have to kill Barbara and it looked like she did, but didn't, or kill Maxwell, or potentially both. And when she didn't, it worked because it goes into what the message of the film. It's not always about fighting your way out. It's about talking things out. And I guess that's kind of the pacifist in me that kind of essentially goes along the phrase of make love not war. And this is a direct connection to the ending of the first film. And now I know that only love can truly save the world. It's about love. So again, five pieces of criteria. Story, characteristics, themes, details, and ending. Patty Jenkins has all of these things. And this is what I mean by when I say this film is objectively good. Based on those aspects, again, saying that this is the worst film of 2020 or the worst comic book movie ever made is hyperbole. Having said that, this film is not perfect. Like I said in the spoiler-free section, I think it has issues with developing Maxwell Lord's character outside of the climactic scene. I genuinely fell for him given what happens, and Pascal's acting is pretty good but all of this emotion came out of these final scenes and not really much prior yeah it builds up but it's a little clunky and i think this could have been fixed if the story was a little bit longer or maybe they did use two villains so i want to talk about some of the biggest complaints that i've seen about this film so it's been the tone the flying the cgi its connection to the other snyder films the renounced wishes the writing and the mall scenes cheesiness i've already talked about the flying so i'm gonna first start off with the tone a lot of the people say that this film didn't feel the same as the the first one. As I already talked about, did you really expect it to? 1984 is drastically different than 1918. How wars were fought was different. What people feared were different. Before I talked about how 1984 was, my question back to you is that did you say that the difference between the first and second cap films was a problem? World War II is very different from modern times. If so, then yes, you're fine to think what you think, though I disagree with it. If not, I think something else is bothering you. I'm not trying to compare the films as they are different characters, however, it doesn't really makes sense if that wasn't a problem for you and this one is now. I personally didn't have any issues with the CGI that I didn't have with other DCE films. I think there's plenty of times where characters didn't look great. Go back and look at Doomsday, Ares. They aren't the best looking. Wonder Woman 84 doesn't really go anything in my opinion against continuity when it comes to the specific line that everyone's talking about in Batman vs Superman. A hundred years ago I walked away from mankind. From a century of horrors. Men made a world where standing together is impossible. This could be translated to, I didn't want to team up with anybody, so I decided to go solo. 
However, in additionally, in the credits scene, we're shown Asteria, who has been protecting people without giving her identity away, and Diana hasn't been able to find out where she is. So, Bruce not finding her, especially with the lack of detective work in this Batman, but whatever. It can make sense that she has done things to protect her identity. She does prevent it getting out, such as retrieving the photo like she did in Batman vs Superman, and also breaking the cameras like she did in this one. For anyone really complaining about this, Superman wears glasses and suddenly he can't be recognized and he is all out in the open. I understand that may be a comment on society's stupidity, but really, if Diana is at 0% for face coverings, glasses are at 0.1%. It's not really a drastic jump. I cannot say that somebody who is smart enough to look at Diana and recognize her that she's Wonder Woman is also stupid enough to look at somebody with glasses and say that that's not Superman. I think that's a really big inconsistency. But again, that is the issue with the Superman character in general. But if you don't have a problem with that, and I don't think you should have a problem with this. So the Wishing Stone is called the Dreamstone, and it was created by the God of Treachery and Mischief. He put on it the power to grant any wish that is made by touching it, but only once per person. It comes with a cost, and the stone is linked to the collapse of several societies. So in the comics, this is a powerful stone used by the Dream of the Endless to focus the power of dreaming into reality and allows the user to alter reality on a tremendous scale. And it's mostly used by Dr. Destiny and he basically creates illusions on a worldwide scale which kind of changes up the timeline and that's not really what we're going to be talking about here. But they honestly could take that into a flashpoint issue of what they're doing but I'm not really going to talk about that here. But essentially the powers of the stones in that versus this are somewhat similar. In the film, it's also referenced to the monkey's paw, which is another detail. So the monkey's paw is a supernatural short story by W.W. Jacobs, and in this story, three wishes are granted to the owner of the monkey's paw, but the wishes come with a normal price for interfering with fate. For anyone saying that this is a MacGuffin, look at the definition. A MacGuffin is an object or device in a movie or a book that serves merely to trigger at to trigger for the plot to happen. The most famous example of this is the Holy Grail. And because this is a desired object that is essential to initiate and advance the plot, but the Grail is the object of which is not of importance in itself. While this one is useful for the plot, it also represents the easy way out to cheat in order to get people what they want. I will say the touching aspect that allows Lord to get people to wish is a little weak, but I do understand that media and television touches people in verbal ways. And also during the pandemic, we're not talking to as many people in person anymore, and we're talking to them via phone calls or in virtual aspects. So it kind of makes sense from that angle, at least. It's not a great way to explain it, but I definitely understand it from that. That could have been done a little bit better. I think it also has to do with the idea of Big Brother and what George Orwell's 1984, because they were influencing people without even actually being in the same room as them. So regarding the issue that everyone's saying that, oh, not everyone can renounce their wish, I say, look at the chronological aspects of the story. Diana and Barbara make their wishes before Maxwell Lord. Maxwell Lord wishes to be the stone. He starts granting people wishes. The key is that things go back to normal when you renounce your wish. So when Maxwell renounces his wish, they go back to normal before him making his wish. All of the wishes that were made after his were nullified by his renouncement. At the end of the story, Barbara may not be furry anymore because that was something given to her post Maxwell's wish, but it's likely she did not renounce anything and she's likely to return in the sequel. At least I think so. Though I will say that they don't really explain what happens to the stone afterwards, which I think is a little bit weak. And regarding the cheesiness, this was honestly intentional. Patty Jenkins has said this. It's an homage to the source material, the other representations of the character, and honestly, the 80s themselves. Purposeful cheesiness and campy is different from 
watching a 80s film where it is cheesy and campy, but they're trying to be serious. The point was to be an homage to those times, which can be cringeworthy. So if you were cringing, then the scene did its job. If there is an issue with the cringing, then that should be directed at the overall film genre, not to the film that the homage is in. Regarding the writing, this film was put together by Jeff Johns, Jenkins, and Callahan. If you aren't a fan of their combination, fine. But singling one of them out or comparing them to Snyder is ridiculous. Firstly, Snyder has only written on the first Wonder Woman film and Justice League. Johns has wrote also on the first Wonder Woman film, Aquaman, and obviously this film. If you enjoy Snyder's writing at this point, the only film that you can say accurately reflects his best work in the DCU is the first Wonder Woman film. The same goes for John's involvement on the first film. He has been involved with DC films as a producer since Batman vs Superman, just as Snyder has. Snyder was only not a producer on the ones that he was directing. Jenkins' only big writing role was on her film Monster, which is a fantastic film. If your only qualm is that she should have kept directing, okay, you may have a point. However, her last writing credit and her love of the character gives her a reason to write it. As I illustrated when I was talking about the story, it makes sense. Also, keep in mind that Snyder only has written on 300, its sequel, Sucker Punch, and again, Wonder Woman and Justice League. Justice League, we haven't seen his vision yet, so arguably say that Wonder Woman and 300 are the only good ones on that list. But that's not here nor there. So that's essentially just one film over Jenkins. But then I would say Monster is a much better film than the combination of Snyder's films. And again, if you're not a fan of the end result, fine, but don't single somebody out and then blame them for things when they were around for the films you enjoyed too. Okay, so subjectively speaking, this film hit me in a lot of personal ways, dealing with loss and also sacrificing personal things for others. And that's why I really love the original Superman film so much. Superheroes, like I said, are meant to inspire, and I hope that for the younger generation that this film will do what Superman did for me as a child. Now, that's my opinion of the film. If you don't like it as much as I did, fine. I couldn't care less. But you can't tell me that there were problems when they are objectively not true. My goal in this episode was not to persuade you to like the film. If that comes of it, great, but that's not my goal. My goal was to try to help you listeners understand critical thinking and separate personal feelings from the objective truth, or honestly, facts. In summary, several years after its publication, George Orwell's 1984 and its parallels to our own reality are still here. And our news agencies can say whatever they want regardless of its basis in facts, and face little to no accountability for misleading the public. Wonder Woman 1984 is able to take these concepts and the ideas of truth and apply them in a superhero comic book way. At the end of the day, the film has heart. And I personally, or subjectively speaking, don't think that this film is as good as the first film. But that's honestly only based on the fact that, again, World War One had much bigger impact. And those moments, I think, are a little bit stronger in the first film. Having said that, this film's number three when it comes to the DCEU for me after the first Wonder Woman film and Shazam. And I think it has a lot to love. And and somewhat in more than the first one does as well. And honestly, I can't wait for the third. So now that you've reached the end of this episode, I want to know what you think. You can talk to me about this. I'm always willing to talk, but I just wanted people to fully understand where I'm coming from. So that's why this episode had to be a lot longer than normal. So thank you all for joining me for this extremely lengthy episode. I think it's the longest one that I've talked on completely by myself. Not sure if that's a good or a bad thing though. I really appreciate your patience. I look forward to hearing from you about what you think about what I had to say and also your continual thoughts on the movie. Let me know hit me up on social media the former review is on facebook twitter and the gram i post many things including trailer reactions so go check those out the handle is all the same it's at the former review feel free to also check out backseatdirectors.com where i work with a big team to put out movie reviews and also editorials again that's backseatdirectors.com please also subscribe to the former review we're on google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, spotify we're now on amazon music iHeartRadio. radio honestly pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast 
we have our content there. Also, I'm always wanting to grow and improve, so please leave a review and what you want to hear because I really do this for you all. I see the numbers and I really appreciate everyone supporting me and talking to me about movies because frankly, that's what it's all about. And for anyone who has supported me on a financial basis, thank you again. And if you want to help support on a financial basis, please go to anchor.fm forward slash the minus sign formal minus sign review and click support this podcast and honestly any donation is appreciated thank you all again for tuning in and until next time wear your mask wash your hands stay safe and take care everyone thanks for tuning in to another episode of the formal review cheers and we'll see you next time